This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? Good. And also Hugh Sign. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. We're so thrilled to have Rodney Crowell with us today. With more than 40 years of American roots music under his belt, Texas native Rodney Crowell is a two-time Grammy Award winner who's written 15 number one hits and five number one hits of his own. Legendary songwriter, performer with strong roots in country music. He's written chart-topping hits for the likes of Emmylou Harris, Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Keith Urban, and also penned songs for Bob Seger, Etta James, The Grateful Dead, John Denver, Jimmy Buffett, and more. A member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame and acclaimed author and recipient of ASCAP's Founders Award. He released a new album in July. Please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Rodney Crowell. Wow. <laughs> After that introduction, <laughs> I'm thinking, who is that guy? <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole idea, you know? Yeah, gotta, man. You know, we got to pump you up. So then you're yeah. all pumped up too, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm worthy, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you are, man. What a list of accomplishments. Very incredible. So your latest record, it might going to pronounce the word right. Will you pronounce it for us? Triage. Triage. Okay. Man, I got to tell you, I immersed myself in that record yesterday. I tried to do this when we're getting ready for these podcasts. And sure. Man, I've, I've always known who you were. I've always respected your songwriting, of course. But man, that record is, it's unbelievable. I think it's a classic I love it. And I don't like anything. I'll be honest with you. I don't, I'm hard to sell, but everything about it, the production, your delivery, the lyrics, the thoughts on mortality really hit home with me on this record. And I, I just wanted to mention a few highlights for our listeners, if I might. Uh, here goes nothing. Hello. Beautiful melody and lyric. Sure to be covered by other artists right there. Great song, man. Thank love you. Love it. Beautiful. Title track, Treyage. I think I did that okay. Great, great lyrics and a cool, dark groove. I love the drum, the, yeah. the feel of that. Transient global amnesia, a spoken word song that's as good as its title. It's really, really cool. Something has got to change is a very cool minor key tune. Great it's, chorus. Yeah. Oh, and with the trombone solo. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You pulled it off and made that cool. That's amazing. It's really yeah, yeah. badass. You got to hear it. You can't beat a um, trombone solo. That's. Well, man. you don't ever hear them. That's no, right. This, uh, this, but it's so no, perfect this, for the tune. It, mm -hmm. it fit it really well. This is the most melancholic and woeful trombone solo I've ever heard. So it's yes, pretty cool. That too. <laughs> and last but not least, don't leave me now. And listeners, I'm not going to spoil it you just have to hear it the surprise that comes about i don't know maybe a minute and a half in what a great tune man what a great record 
Cheers. <laughs> Dude, I'm a big fan of, and I'm a songwriter myself, but I'm a big fan of guys like Leonard Cohen and Bruce Bruce Coburn, Warren Zevon, John Prine. And man, this is as good. This is on par with anything my favorite master songwriters have ever done. And now I'm going to go back, and I already started going back to uh, to some of your early work, and now I'm just really, really impressed, man. Kudos to you. Great Whoa. work. Okay. Great stuff. Uh, all right. Well, listen, I got, uh, you know, I think I'm done here. And <laughs> <laughs> no, we're just getting started, man. No, uh, hey, but, very hey, impressive. No, that's, that's, that's very kind. And, you know, and I, I really, I truly am flattered and, uh, you know, made humble, you know, because I know that thing about, man, I don't like anything. Which is, you know, I, I, I can say that, but the truth is, I like a lot of music, you know, and I listen to a lot of music. And, and you know, uh, you, with you picking out uh, Here Goes Nothing, very much influenced by my love of Leonard Cohen's last uh, three albums. Okay. You know, you know sure. very much so because... You know, the thing, it's like Leonard Cohen was leaving us a roadmap there, you know, for, um, you know, it, as a younger artist, you know, my, the expression I wanted to make was basically to seduce some woman and, you know, to get into the right clothes and all of that stuff that, that the younger artist does, you know, rightfully sure. so. But, you know, with time passing... It's like, you know, you have to let childish things go. And the one thing that, that I thought Leonard Cohen was doing, he was pointing the way. And, you know, in my internal uh, dialogue with myself, I said, look, you know, I pretty much said all of those broad stroke love song things, you know. It's like, what do I have to say now? You know, so it, it's, you know, it's I have to face mortality because, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. We're only immortal for a limited time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Well, my, you know, the warranty ran out of my immortality. So I had to start writing about what do I do now? <laughs> All that makes sense. And, and it's just so heartfelt and, and just hard on your sleeve stuff that I think uh, our listeners would really appreciate. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, Don't Leave Me Now, which is. And I won't. I won't give away the surprise uh, either. No. But I. But I will say, you know that. Hey, man, I told a lie, and I and I knew I was gonna. I knew I was gonna get busted for it. And and my, uh, you know, my relationship with myself was like, man, I'm a straight up honest guy. But no, I betrayed it, and I, you know, I blew it. And the, the only and. To me, that song is a prayer. It's like it, it wasn't that I cheated on my wife or anything like that. I mean, I blew it in a, in a more cosmic way, and it was like, okay, lied to yourself. Yeah, I lied yeah. to myself, and you know, I had I had to you know make amends with whatever is on high that's been guiding me for a long time. You know, so that's you know, there's a lot of blood in that one, and you and also I just want to address your the groove on triage and what you mentioned about that. It's a particularly interesting recording in that, that you know, John Jarvis is on piano and Larry Klein is playing bass and Stuart okay. Smith is playing guitar and Jerry Rose playing drums. And we're 
messing around trying to figure out how to play a groove on that song and it's like i'm trying to explain what it is i'm trying to get at with a song rhythmically and then out of nowhere all those great musicians just said oh this must be what you're looking for and there it was you know and and i'm in the middle of performing it and John Jarvis's piano solo comes up and I said, oh, my God, you know, they've gone beyond what I was trying to explain. They've, they've taken that to another level. And uh, which is, you know, my love of great musicians. The reason I live in Nashville mainly is, is to have access to musicians like that. Of course, Larry and, well, I'll come to think of it, all of those musicians except uh, Jerry Rowe living are far flung across the country you know so i guess right. that that's out the window but there are a lot of great musicians in nashville as there there are great musicians everywhere that aha moment that you described being in the studio and suddenly everything sinks and falls into place i can imagine that's sort of the wrecking crew phenomenon and they just know how to respond to a song intuitively you know to make it its best it can be and yeah. I know Jerry, Jerry's dad real well, Dave. He's a good friend. Yes. Great bass yeah. player. Yes, he is a great bass player. You know, and interesting thing about, you know, I've worked a lot with Jerry Rowe, and uh, and my first song ever was ever recorded was by Jerry Reed, who is Jerry Rowe's grandfather. That's that's correct, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. And so we, we got, we you know, we got, I've worked with all three generations, you know, from that family. and Wow. I've never gotten Jerry and Dad together at the same time, but I've worked with them separate of each other. Very cool. Well, that'd be fun. That'd be a nice rhythm section, by golly. Yeah. You know, those two guys. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to say about the the production on this record, the hook lines are so sparse and immediately hummable. Immediately, I know that, like on the song that we're talking about, Don't Leave Me Now, you know, it's so simple and so perfect and that's really hard to come up with that stuff so let alone the melodies and the lyrics and that part of this record is uh is very cool too thank you thank you, you know a lot of I, I will give myself a pat on the back you know and composing the songs that um uh, some of those you know memorable hooks were part of the composition of the song things that i was mm -hmm. humming or in my own humble way playing on the guitar and, and uh showing it to the guys you know and and then they would take it and make it better of course but sure typically for you when you when you speak about that process i'm always intrigued by people such as yourself who excel in the in the lyric department you know do you find yourself delving into groove and melody and chord structure before you challenge yourself with the lyric content or do you find yourself being the poet first and then coming to that with the song? Well, uh, that question could be answered from either end, really. I'll say this, for the most part, my melodic sensibilities usually happen pretty rapidly. You know, when a groove comes up or a chord change or a tone, sound, or just a progression, that usually unfolds pretty quickly where i spend most of the time in composing songs is in is on the lyric and and there's a lot of revision that goes 
yeah. into, into what I do now and so much more than when, you know, I was in my 20s and, you know, sometimes capturing lightning in a bottle occasionally. You know, any uh, the lightning in a bottle anymore doesn't come, isn't there to be captured. It's, uh, it's there to be worked for. And, and I find that the work that I do now, and which I really enjoy, is like I have to work hard to uh, live up to what, you know, my vision has become for what's a good song and what's a really strong lyric. As composed when I was a young guy, and anything, if it sounded good and it seemed like it worked, is like, yeah, I'm in, I'm all in. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have that luxury that much anymore because I have... I'm, I've had enough experience with it, and I've, I've actually written a book, and I've been edited by a great editor. And so now I understand, you know, more than ever before. And one of my early, earliest influence personally was Guy Clark, who I was always, I understood, you know, as a young man that, look, one of the things about Guy Clark is he's a great self-editor, and I need to learn how to become a self-editor. And so my self-editing chops, you know, in, in the year 2019 and 2020 are far more developed than they were in, in, in 1976. You're also making higher demands as you, as you evolve. I think it's true of most artists. Once you evolve as an artist, the more you recognize yourself and the more you become familiar with what you care about and what you admire both in other artists and in your own accomplishments, you're raising that bar, whether you know it or not. You're constantly raising that bar. So bringing your best to that that achievement every time becomes even more and more intimidating and challenging. Yes, it does. <laughs> or not. Like you say, there are the lightning in the bottle days, which do happen. So was, to answer my question, do you find the melody and the music kind of cruise through you first, and then you come to that with lyrics? Or do you ever kind of write words down that motivate the song? Yes, to that yes i do sometimes write a verse chorus you know i could have a verse and i could find a, a pattern you know a chord sequence that gives it life and uh, then go, go from there right. I, it's, it's rare that i'll write an entire lyric and then put yeah i think I have done that and actually uh -huh. there is a song on triage the girl on the street which is, you know, I, I actually, it's a true story. I, I bumped into a, a young woman on the street in San Francisco, and she was, you know, she was jonesing for drugs and, you know, and basically made it clear to me that she would do anything for the money. Mm -hmm. That And, you know, and I handed her 45 cents and, and walked on, and then I, I walked on for a block, and then I said, wait a minute. And I turned around and tried to find her because... I could have bought her something to eat. I could have bought her a hotel room for the night. Yeah. You know, I had the money. And my regret about that, I, I flying home from San Francisco, I wrote most of that lyric fly, flying home. And then I found the melody. And I, it's, it, I do think this, you know, when I write the lyric first, I will wind up, for instance, with Girl on the Street. It's, it's basically, you know, your folk finger style influence melodic yeah. thing yeah. which we dressed up in the production you know to give it a little more than that but i think when the lyric goes first the melodic things that i come up with will be a bit more generic or a bit more out of a school that you've already 
Yeah. When I write, you know, when a melody and a chord change comes to me, you know, you know, out of the blue, it tends to be more, uh, I, I tend to discover something new in my melodic sense when that happens. Right. You, you mentioned writing a book. Are, are you talking about the, the Chinaberry Sidewalks? Yes. yes. Yeah, I, I happened across some excerpts on that today. And it's pretty evident to me that the, the depth of your thinking, the depth of your emotions, the, the way you wear those on your sleeve, I wouldn't say comfortably, but willingly and effectively, I think mm. you come by that so, so honestly because of what you have gone through. It was just heartbreaking just to read the excerpts this morning, not to delve into the book in this conversation, but it, it becomes evident to me that when I'm listening to your music today, as I was researching and reminding myself about your music, it was just, it was lovely and lovely for that kind of reason, or for that very reason, I believe. Well, I will say this, you know, I've had, uh, in reference to the book, and then we'll move on from it, I, yeah. I did, I did, I have had people say to me, man, I'm sorry about your childhood. To which my honest answer is, hang on, I had the perfect childhood for me. And, yeah. and, you know, and as crazy and as mixed up as my parents were, they were perfect for me. And and my friend John David Souther, you know, it, when he read the book, he just said, he said, hey, man, if my parents were as colorful as yours, I'd write a book, too. That's a good thing. You, you yeah. draw on a lot of that color. That's the cup half full. That's good. Yeah. So I have a question. So, you know, when you look at your songwriting credits now, it reads like a who's who type of thing. And, and I've I referenced some of those in the intro. But when did it occur to you? When was that light bulb moment that you were like, I'm a songwriter? Oh, I have a story. Uh, and I'm Mickey Raphael's uh, friend of mine. He's a harmonic, been longtime harmonica player with yep. Willie. Mickey introduced me to Willie early on. You know, one of those Daryl Royal song pools, you know, back coach Daryl Royal, you know, it was it was royalty, literally. So that when I'd first written Till I Gained Control again, I played it. You know, it's the only thing I really was willing, you know, was comfortable or to show. And I did. And, you know, that was that. And I didn't think anything would ever happen from that. And then sometime later, Willie was playing at the Palomino and, uh, Mickey called me up and said, hey, man, we're at the Palomino in L.A. And he said, why don't you come and, you know, come in and see the show? I said, oh, yeah, man, I'm there. I'm coming in. So it's crowded. I'm standing by the bar and, and Willie says, I want to do a Rodney Krause song. And I think he's in the house and I want him to come up and sing harmony with me, wow. which, you know, which, you, which, you know, that's not easy to sing to sing harmony with Willie. But I remember, you know, and I, and I was pretty stoned, you know, this was the 70s. Mm -hmm. And I, I was flo <laughs> floating up to the stage. And, uh, and I remember thinking, wow, I'm being knighted. I'm a songwriter. Yeah. I'm a songwriter. I'm, I'm being yeah. knighted. From that moment on, I've never questioned that, that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What, a, what a gift, eh? Yeah, it was good. Well, that was a better story and answer to my question than I was expecting. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was super cool. That's great. Yeah, good. Yeah, it is a good story. And so, thanks to Mickey, right? For Yes, yes. Mickey's a great guy. Thanks to Mickey. 
I mean, Mickey has come through us several times in my life, you know, with, with ideas and things that it's like that I built on. And for the record, Julio Iglesias sang harmonies with Willie, so it can't be that impossible. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say it was impossible. I just said it wasn't easy. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Especially with the 70s floating vibe up to the stage. Yes. A little tougher. Being stoned, that's a different thing. (laughs) It took the pressure off, maybe. Well, you know, that that put me closer to the source. Well, no question about that. (laughs) Yeah. Some musicians do well in that state, you know. I don't think it's any any mystery why McCartney's been stopped at several airports. I think it just worked well for him in his career, don't don't we think? <laughs> Except for the little period in jail. Yeah, he, he right. did okay with that. Well, you know, I I I was very creative and you know, in that headspace for in my twenties and into my thirties, but I reached a point where it didn't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And and when it stopped working, I said, "Okay, it's not working anymore." And I and you know and I, I have to change this. So I I went I went I can't say I, I went turkey on it, but I just dropped it. And I actually technically became a better songwriter because I wasn't relying so much anymore on that lightning in a bottle you know because yeah i mean i wrote i wrote songs in my 20s where the first two verses and chorus were really good and the uh, influence was wearing off by the third verse and i cobbled together <laughs> a, sh- a shitty third verse <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know and one of my most famous songs i'm still trying to figure out what that third verse should have been mm. you know so there's that Sure. That's an idea for an album, the woulda, shoulda, coulda. Yeah. The third verse. The phantom third verse. Yeah. Dylan was always known to like Tangled Up in Blue. He kept rewriting that for years. There's a yeah. live version of it, like in the eighties, that it's a totally different song. Is have you ever done that? Have you ever gone uh, back to it? I'm still doing it. Shame on the moon. I still I still rewrite I retired when Seeger recorded it. I retired it for nearly forty years, but I started performing it recently with my band that I have together right now. And you know, every night I'll take a stab at something different for that last verse. Wow! And, and what? Uh, in real time, you'll and, and I, I I try it in real time. Wow! 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 I, I, I try a few couplets that i have set aside to stick them in to see how they sound on a given night some night i say look man you gotta live you know right in the moment in this and you're gonna say something on this third verse and you know i've fallen flat on my face yeah but but, you know it's um (laughs) there's there one particular artist who i admire so much because that song got really popular but one fella recorded it. I'll leave his name out because it it doesn't help. But he came up to me and he said, hey, man, I recorded your shame on the moon. And he said, I sure wish I could have been there with you when you were writing that last verse. And I said, I said, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> finally, finally, somebody telling me the truth about this last verse. <laughs> That's so he wasn't complimenting you. He was telling you that. Oh, man, I could have <laughs> got you through that thing. Well, you know, he he was telling me that, but by the same token, 
he was going along with on the same ride that everybody else was going on. Yeah, interesting. You know, I, I put I put it to, to Bob Seger. I said, Bob, tell me the truth. What do you think about that last verse when you sing it? And he said, perfect. Uh, so go figure. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned the Willie story, and obviously that was a, an amazing live experience. But from a fan perspective, what was your first concert that you went to? Hank Williams. 1952. I was two years, four months old. It was December 14th, 1952. And my father took me and uh, had me on his shoulders. I write about it in, in Chinaberry Sidewalk. My memory of, of seeing Hank, <coughs> Hank Williams was bolstered by my dad, who constantly would say to me, you know, my dad was a singer. And he'd say, look, I took you to see the Hank Williams in to the hillbilly Shakespeare, mm-hmm. that was his words. So he re- he reinforced my memory of that show, and uh, but I also remember a light. I remember an eddy of cool air brushing against my cheek, and I remember the smell of my dad's hair oil, probably right. wild, probably wild root, and that's what I remember. And everything else about that show uh, is my father's memory and the way he. He would not let it, he would never let it it die that he took me to see the hillbilly Shakespeare. So it's kind of a mystical experience with my dad. Uh, I saw Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, and Jerry Lee Lewis when I was about eight at at uh, oh, Magnolia wow. Gardens in Houston. Now here's a story. It's what Johnny Cash later became my father-in-law, but so. Carl opened the show. It was East Houston, driving rain. Jerry Lee came on. He pushed the, you know, that old upright piano to the edge of the stage and just dared the lightning to strike him. And he was playing, you know, and, and you know, what we call hoods in East Houston. They were out there on the dance floor in the driving rain with their ducktails, you know, doing back bends with their, and slinging, you know, water with their hair. And, and I was, wow, this is wild, you know. And then Johnny Cash comes on. The rain stops. The clouds open up. The sunshine comes out. This is like 4 o'clock in the, on a Sunday afternoon. And he walks out, strums a guitar, and sings, How high is the water, mama? And I was eight years old, and it killed me. It was wow. it was high art, high performance art. He walked out there and, I mean, as a graphic artist, you know what I'm talking about. You know, he yeah. walked out there and framed the whole situation. And it, it had a great effect on me seeing that happen. And then one other, one other earlier one, I, I, ha- I happened to see the Beatles in, in 65. Where, where was the Beatles show at? Houston. In Houston, okay. Coliseum. Funny thing about that, that my memory of that, you know, it was the first time I ever picked up a girl, too. My buddy and I, we got a couple of girls, and it was open seating. We ran in there and got good seats. And we were sitting with girls, you know, what all these women were, all these girls were screaming. The thing that I remember about it was that you could not hear anything except the roar <laughs> of the screams, yet I knew exactly where they were in the song. Yeah. I knew exactly where they were in Twist and Shout, you know. It was like, whoa, this music, you know, this music can find you through this cacophony of, of 
4K shrieks, you know? Yeah. Wow. Well, that's a good line. Write that down. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome to use it. (laughs) It's being recorded right now. (laughs) I couldn't imagine singing it, never mind saying it again. (laughs) So tell us some more about Johnny Cash, you know, married to Roseanne. What kind of a father-in-law was he? Great. How was Sunday dinner? Oh, it's great. I'll, I'll tell you probably what says the most for me in the long run. I mean, John and Jim were always fun. And, you know, I knew what time it was with, with John and June. You know, they were they were traveling performers. You know, they were they were pros, you know, so I knew what was up there. And but after Roseanne and I uh, called it quits really amicably, we're still great friends today. We, co- we co-parent some grown people. Um, but my wife, Claudia, and I. When we got together, uh, John called me up and said, hey, you know, he says, we want you to come over. We want to we want to meet this Claudia we're hearing so much about. Cool, man. So, you know, Claudia and I went off to dinner at the, the house on the lake. You know, it was just John and June and, and they treated her like a princess, you know. Wow, and we were awesome. we were driving home afterwards. And Claudia said, I cannot believe that. You know, mm. this is your ex father-in-law and, and mother-in-law and they treated me like i was part of the family as That's it a, should be when you think about it yeah it's not always possible but it's brilliant when it when it happens yeah you got you know you got to take the high road and that's you know john and june is from my perspective they always took the high road on all on all of it you know even with with the you know I, there was a lot to learn about fame being in that circle because you know the people right in yeah. the middle, right in the middle of fame. The people who had earned the fame through their hard work were pretty normal people. In on a given day, they certainly weren't normal on a when it was time to go to work. But it was the people around them trying to protect their positions in in the uh, sidelight of fame. You know that 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 taught me a lot. You know about okay. You know, it's like, man, when you grapple for for something that's not really yours, Mm. it's not very becoming. Yeah. Uh, You know, so there was a lot to be learned there. Sure. One question I had that I forgot to ask earlier, you know, the the time that you spent earlier in your career as part of Emmylou Harris's band. Yeah. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Oh, there's so much there. You know, it's I came into Nashville and I fell into a into a scene with that was Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt and Mickey Newberry and and Steve Earl came in. You know, we were Steve and I were young, but there was this group of songwriters. I was plucked out of that group by Emmy Lou and and went to L.A. and fell into this band that Emmy was was assembling with James Burton and Henry Gordy and Glenn D. Harden, all these musicians who played with uh, Elvis, yeah, you know, part of the TCB band. Right. And and the one thing that was readily available, and I thank Brian O'Hearn and Emmy Lou for this, was that I had had a really great education with, you know, street-level education on writing songs. And then I joined a band with a bunch of great arrangers. And and I, st- I had a crash course in arranging when I joined the hot band, when I was nominated to be in the hot band. Because Glenn Harden and Emery Gordy, were as fine of arrangers as you could possibly want to come by. And they were really quick. You could 
put a song in front of them and they could they could sort out where everything goes to make it work and you know in a matter of minutes and that was wow. a, a great thing to learn now after that you know this is the first time i traveled you know half the world you know there was europe and 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 the states you know that's really probably not half the world it's a quarter of the world maybe but it was the first time to get out there you know and and for that that was the it was all educational you know it's like okay come on young man there's a lot to experience in this world and pay attention you mentioned brian ahern did he produce your work or much of your work he produced my first album you know yeah. and when you know coming off of uh, being in the hot band and and playing on emmy's albums and you know brian and emmy basically were the ones that conspired to get me in the hot band and he and brian produced my first album i met him at the uh, toronto sound studio in toronto i'm being canadian myself now living in indiana go figure i met brian Sorry. at uh, toronto no don't that's great i love being here but meeting brian and, you know, around the time he was working with Ann Murray, and, you know, I was in the studio and working on some stuff with Brian and also Lenny Bro, um, yeah. which was an interesting jam. <laughs> yeah. We, yes. This was 1970, maybe three. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would that would be the Skip Beckwith and Rat Riccio and Don Thompson and band that, that Ann yeah. had at the time. Yeah, yeah. I was... I was skip back with his was a bass player and he passed away sadly. He came through Nashville in um, seventy three and to to recruit a guitar player uh -huh. sadly to to replace Lenny Bro. And uh, uh and, really yeah and uh, and he's the one who said, Look, you got any songs? So I gave him a cassette or a reel-to-reel -reel tape that he took to Canada to Toronto and yeah for Ann Murray but it turns out that Brian was was just getting together to produce Emmy Lou and and my songs Emmy Lou got him immediately but I will tell you if if you'll permit me I'll tell you it's an interesting story all of those those Canadian musicians all the beboppers you know that were were playing in Ann's band at the time you know they that was a that was a crowd of really great musicians and they were down in the dirt musicians and, yeah. and Ann had this, you know, you know, songbird quality, you know, Jim, Jim coach, you know, and, yeah. and, and I would, I would travel around with them a little bit. And after the gig, they would, we would get kind of into the drinks and stuff. And, and then the band would shove me into to Ann's hotel room and say, oh, play, play, play that Bluebird wine for Ann, you know, and I'd play it, I'd sit there, you know, embarrassed and play it for Ann, and, nice. and she, she would go, well, that's a really good song, she said, but that's just not for me, you know, and, and I, I said, I understand, I really do understand, but you don't understand, your band is pushing me <laughs> in this room. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bunch of bunch of beboppers, you know. Yeah. <laughs> bunch of bullies. <laughs> yeah. 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 She took it well. You know, I, I have great admiration for her. She took it with humor and she knew what she knew what was going on with that crew, you know. Yeah, some pretty amazing players though, yeah. Yeah, they were. Even though they were Canadian, Hugh. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Even though, now, <laughs> just kidding. Said that, um, do the names 
Do the names Paul Anka, uh, Brian Adams, uh, <laughs> Just Shania Twain. Here we go. Here we go. He's going up for a Let's see. I'm Neil, sorry. Neil, <laughs> Neil Young. Young. Joni Mitchell. Mitchell. I know. I know. Joni Mitchell. And, and let's, let's go outside. How about Bob Carpenter and John Renton? Mm. Those yeah. The, okay. Yeah, those those were guys around in the, in the seventies that that you know when I first got around there they never really broke big but man they had they were they were true artists. Bruce Coburn is one. Bruce of my Coburn's favorites. one of my favorites too. Yeah. Yes, yeah. he is. Yes, I used to see him at the Riverboat, which was owned by his manager Murray McLaughlin's manager. It was mm -hmm. Bernie Finkelstein, and they owned the Riverboat, which is where everybody cut their teeth in the seventies. I used to sit six feet away from. Bruce on stage watching his hands and thinking, I want to do that. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm still, I'm still trying. It's amazing how he could separate his accompaniment from his vocal delivery live. It was always impressive to me. Yeah. Well, he's a gifted man, that one. Yeah. You know, and I mean, and his ability to articulate his own spirituality in song is, yeah. is spot on. Yeah, man. No question. Yeah. Well, it takes one to know one. Amen. Awesome. What's next for you, Rodney? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, well, I have some projects and that are going on, and it's almost a shotgun pattern. There, I owe. I have a couple of records that I owe to a, a distri distribution record distribution company that I need to fulfill because the deal's a deal. I also, in, in 19, 2007, I made, uh, I, I'd made the Houston Kid, Faith's Right Hand, and The Outsider kind of back-to-back, -back, and people were calling them my trilogy at the time. And I made, a, I made a fourth album, and when I listened to it, it sounded like all of my production tricks were glaring at me, you know, I'd, things I'd just done in the past three records. So I put it on the shelf. And I went to California and made a record with Joe Henry, which I'm thankful that I did. It was a great experience, and Joe and I became really close friends, and Joe's a, a great influence on me. But I recently dug it up accidentally. I stumbled across, you know, the tapes, and I started listening to them, and I went, whoa, man, I was wrong. It was good stuff. And it was, it, I really wasn't copying myself at the time. So... <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to gracefully take a couple of tracks off and add a couple of tracks where it needs to happen and then release that record because I think it's worthwhile. I think it's it's worthy and I'm proud of the work. I just couldn't recognize mm. its uh, validity at the time. Sometimes these, you have to get away from something for a little while to, to recognize that, I think. Yeah. Do you owe these two records as brand new compositions or is this any configuration you want like best of or yes it's well one of them is a uh, is having you know produced my own records and financed my own records you know for the last 20 years i have a lot of outtakes mm -hmm. uh, that belong to me you know yeah, sure. and and uh a distribution company has gotten wind of that and wants that right yeah and and uh and I think that would be okay because it's not, it wasn't, it, at the time it didn't seem good enough to go on the albums that I was working on, but I've recently discovered that I made a whole record that I think is worthy of releasing now. So hmm. some of yeah. these, 
some of these outtakes might be, I think the songs were good. It's just the only reason I wouldn't, for the most part, the songs were good. But the reason that I wouldn't release them at the time was mainly a matter of performance and production, where, you know, some things just don't hold together. If I were going to release them as the outtakes and the remakes and the scrap heap sonatas that they are, I'd have to let them go yeah. just like they are. Here's what here, okay. here's what it was. You know, you yeah. you just you decide if I shouldn't if I, if I was right not to release these at the time. Mm. I'm okay with something like that to go out, but if I've got something else that's that I think is really work that's that I want out there as as an example of what I can do, I would rather go with that than I would with outtakes. But sure. yeah. At some point, maybe the outtakes work. And, and, you know, and I understand clearly that that would be really most interesting to people who follow me pretty closely. I yes. think they, they, might, they might like to see that just to see the process, you know, like. Sure. You wouldn't have to come up with some contrivedly guarded selfie-facing title to, <laughs> to, to make these. Fly. No, no, no. The the truth will set you free. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say you could do it proudly, man. I'm sure. I'm sure they're brilliant. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you better hear it first. <laughs> well, hey, well, look, fellas. I I have to scoot because I have to get somewhere. I hate to. No, I hate no to be the the one to uh, curb the fun and all. But I mean, this is really cool. It's great to talk to you guys. I hope you know. Hope we get it again sometime. Best to you, man. Yeah, and, and I really yeah, it's the time. Yeah, well, I really enjoy the conversation. You know, it's I good stuff. Yeah. yeah. All right, everybody, Thank stay you. well, be well, and God bless you. Yep. Here's my your problem there. See ya. Bye, man. <laughs>